Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. I don't like Mondays. I want to shoot the whole day down because that's not the day Stick to Wrestling is released. I want to thank the Boomtown Rats for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. Where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps, indeed, we will give you a Raw Bone podcast. I want to wish everyone well. This is a really rotten time in America, around the world. We're dealing with this coronavirus thing. Hopefully, we can keep you entertained for about an hour. At least one good thing has come out of this. No mass school shootings lately, like that song was written about back when school shootings we're worthy of having a song written about them. Anyway, I have to ask you guys a question. I know there are good podcasts out there, but how many of them are wicked good? Are there any other podcasts that are wicked good? Tell you what, let me ask this group of people. Yes. 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 Yes, sure. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Yes. Yes. Yes, a thousand times yes. Obviously, they have the answer. Stick to Wrestling, the only Wicked Good Wrestling podcast out there. Also want to bring to everyone's attention that I recently did a baseball podcast with Brian Last and Kevin Sullivan. Yes, that Kevin Sullivan. We spent a good hour talking baseball and it wasn't just a 2020 preview this show is coming out like middle of august 2020 and my prediction is that baseball will have been stopped by then hopefully not but that's my honest guess but that's how we talk about we talk about the national league introducing the dh we're talking about various hall of fame performers but wait there's more brian put out an extra innings part of the baseball show which i am on for about an hour the last hour of the show i get to hang out with brian last mike sempervivi and the great john arezzi talking baseball so if you are so inclined definitely give that one a listen we have a facebook group here at stick to wrestling if you just go to facebook and type in stick to wrestling you will find it very easily It's worth signing up Facebook for. And let me say this. I signed up to Facebook or started using it like five years ago. And to this day, I lie to my family, to my closest friends. And I tell them that I don't use Facebook for anything. I tell them, yeah, I signed up for an account years ago, but I never use it. Don't bother me with that crap. I encourage you to also lie to your family and closest friends if you just want to stay away from that Facebook stuff but be part of the wrestling part of it. Take my advice. Do it. It's worth it. We take questions from the listeners. We answer whatever questions you have. There's cool wrestling conversations. I try to put up classic results every day at least once a day. The Facebook group is part of the show. You get to ask questions about this show. Last week, we took questions about 1984 World Class. I think we answered them all last week, but it is interactive, and that's why I want to be part of it. I want you to be part of it. Excuse me. For a moment, I will not stick to wrestling. I have a recommendation for you. There is a movie on Netflix that I've watched for the first time maybe two months ago, and I've watched like three times since 
It's called Alpha Dog. And the less you know about this movie coming in, the better off you will be. I will give you a very brief synopsis. It is set, I think, in 1998. And it's about a bunch of kind of overprivileged Southern California kids getting into trouble and creating a situation that spirals out of control. It's an amazing story. I cannot recommend it enough. Now, with that absolutely painfully long introduction behind us, let's get back to part two of our conversation with Chris Tabar about the world-class championship wrestling Cotton Bowl show from 1984. Let's go. Okay, we've got Chris Tabar back, and we are talking the 1984 Cotton Bowl show, October 27th, 1984. We're discussing that as a basis point for world-class championship wrestling in 1984 in general. The show drew 12,000, and it looked pretty good on TV, not as good as the Texas Stadium show, but it also looked like that. You know, if you were the 12,001 person who got in that arena, you were not getting a very good seat. Now, a lot has changed in world class over the past five months, uh, as it should. But, you know, world class moved kind of slow sometimes. The Freebirds are gone. Gino Hernandez has been the American heavyweight champion, which is their top title uh, since his first appearance on TV. He then won a tournament for the Texas state title, beating Ric Flair in the finals, which, by the way, for the longest time, I thought was a phantom match, but it was not. It really happened. Um, And Flair was the NWA champion at the time. So Gino is on a spree of dominance. He actually got a pinfall win over Kerry Von Erich on TV, which was as clean as you could reasonably expect. He has uh, Nicola Roberts as his bodyguard. More on that later. And Nicola has a strange on-camera relationship with Jake Roberts at this point. The show starts with Norvell Austin versus Skip Young at a 15-minute time limit draw. No TV on this. The first match we get from TV is the missing link against George Weingroff. Chris, any thoughts on this match? Well, I don't know if Mercer or Lawrence mentioned it in this match because they mention it in every other match. But uh, George, oh, was, George Weingroff was legally blind. And I didn't even it, have to ask what you were going to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you th- start thinking about it, yeah. If you've watched any of that TV, you know that they're going to mention it. You know, I actually liked Weingroff a, a lot. I thought he was pretty good in the ring, kind of nondescript. And obviously he was never going to be a big star, but he was pretty good. This is exactly what you expect, the link killing a guy that's had some wins on TV, and let's move on to the next one. Yeah, it was card filler for sure, and it made sense. I mean, now Missing Link seems to be getting a little bit of a push, and Weingroff, you know, I mean, God bless him. He's a courageous dude being a a pro wrestler while being legally blind, but I I, I don't know, Chris. He struck me as unpushable. Yeah, he was never going to be... He was never going to get a, get a big push, but he was remarkably good in the ring for having that limitation. If you never told anybody he's blind, you wouldn't know. And he was actually pretty decent in the ring. But then you throw in the fact that he's legally blind and it becomes pretty amazing. Yeah. And I, like I said, I give the guy credit. He just you know didn't have a lot of charisma. Speaking of guys not having a lot of charisma, next match is Kelly Kaniski and El Diablo against the Fantastics. 
Ted DiBiase once said that Kelly Kaniski was the least charismatic wrestler he had ever laid eyes on. That might be accurate. <laughs> Although he did get a he got a 100% clean pinfall over Kevin Von Erich on TV, but yeah, he was he had absolutely no charisma. He was all right in the ring. It was obvious he was trying to be his dad, but didn't have his dad's presence or his dad's skill. Or he hung size. around or his size. And he hung around forever. He was in world class way longer than I ever thought he would have been. And he's just kind of there, just a yeah. body to take up space. And, and, and you need those. Yeah, and you, you do. Not everybody is going to get the top push. There's got to be guys that can go out and have a solid eight-minute match on the undercard and not embarrass themselves. And that's what Kelly Kaniski was going to do for you. And El Diablo is another guy. So they, they did this several times where they would bring in random luchadors or Mexican guys and stick them on big shows. And El Diablo was on TV several times too. And here he just pops up when we get this random tag team thrown together to be fed to the Fantastics. Yeah. El, El Diablo, do you have any idea who he was? I was staring at him trying to figure it out and I couldn't. No, I I, I was doing the same thing and I I couldn't tell you. No, no I'm like. My guess is that he was just a prelim guy under a mask. This was either the first appearance of the Fantastics or one of the first appearances for the Fantastics in this area. And Tape, I know they are one of your all-time favorite tag teams. Oh, I love these guys. To me, yes, they are absolutely my favorite tag team of all time. Love them, love them, love them. Loved them from the first time I saw them. Loved them watching them again on, on this show and other ones. Even against Kelly Kaniski and El Diablo, I'm sold. Love it. They got quite the response from the ladies in the crowd. Lots of screams. It's early in the show, so everyone's enthusiasm is high. But they seemed really to get over with the Dallas crowd. More so, I think, than they did in Mid-South. Yeah, at least in their first run in the Mid-South. they got. I think they were over at least as much when they went back to the UWF. But they were definitely they were over immediately big time with the crowd or they were getting roses and they're getting people kissing them and all of that stuff. Yeah. They were over huge right away. Yeah. I, I agree with you. And it, they were a good fit for world-class championship wrestling. You know, we, we talked about a little bit last week about bringing in the midnight express and having them, you know, in the tag team role. I mean, it, it was a good role for the fantastics. They're contenders for the tag team championship. Yeah. And you know that they're going to give you excitement and give you a quality match every time out. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to ever have them at the absolute top of the card. They, they don't belong there, but they're a, they're a great side dish to go with all of the, the main event singles matches. They're a great undercard match to have. That's going to tear the house down a lot. I wasn't there for this, but in, I want to say 1990, it was either 90 or 91. I think it was 90. Uh, Joel Goodhart brought in the Fantastics for one of his shows. And it's Philadelphia. And it's a Joel Goodhart show. So the Fantastics get booed. And Bobby Fulton, who, by the way, I know has been going through some health issues. I, he's a really nice guy. And I hope he comes out okay. Gets on the mic and says, you know, we're the Fantastics. We're one of the best wrestling tag teams out there. And you dirt sheet marks or whatever he called them us whatever you know should have your heads examined or whatever he said but like he came out swinging at the uh, newsletter fans and I, my reaction to that was bobby we're the guys that like you man 
<laughs> that, that's great. I had, I hadn't heard that story. That's that's hilarious. I could I could see that happening, but because I they hadn't been booed anywhere, so I imagine it was kind of shocking for them to get booed like that. That's funny. <laughs> it happened. I, I I but one of the best matches I've ever seen live. It was Boston. I want to say April nineteen eighty. Yeah, definitely April nineteen. April fifteenth, nineteen eighty eight. Uh, was the Fantastics against the Midnight Express, and it was just a, a great match, one of the 10 best matches I've ever seen live. They were fantastic as soon as the bell sounded. They wrestled so many times, and they had so many good matches in Mid-South and in, in World Class, but when they went back to, to Crockett in 88, or when they were in Crockett in 88 with the Midnight Express, those matches were incredible, and they had tons of them. Yeah, they they went around the horn more than once against the Midnights, and it was all very good. Next up on this show is Kerry Von Erich against Butch Reed in an arm wrestling contest. Now, I was once crazy enough to wonder why these things took forever. And it's like, well, because arm wrestling matches usually take a matter of seconds and you want to build up the drama. But it's always painful to me to watch that five minutes of stalling before they actually start arm wrestling. Yeah, it seems like in, in 84, every promotion was doing at least one or two uh, arm wrestling matches. And I know Hogan had done some in Georgia as well. And Putsky and Ventura did one. And Hogan and I think Ventura did one. And it, it seems yep. like everybody was doing a, uh, a, a an arm wrestling thing. I thought they were stupid even when I was 12 in 1984. And watching them now, I think it's it's still stupid. And this one goes on for what they like fifteen minutes or something when it's all said and done. It just it's I can imagine in sitting in the crowd, it had to just feel torturous. Yeah, watching it on TV when I had distractions seemed torturous. Now they have this table in the ring that looks like it would collapse if you put a bag of Fritos on it. And of course, during the arm wrestling match, twice Kerry's about to win. And the table tips over, and I swear it looks like they both just said, all right, let's forget this and go home. You know, I want to say that that was intentional, that the table tipped over, because I think Butch was kicking the legs out. And if that's the case, I thought it was really good. But yeah, that table, I can't believe that table stood up when those two guys put their arms on the table, let alone when they're pushing on it and pulling on it, because that's the flimsiest table ever. Doesn't anyone look at this table and say, okay, this is going to be on TV. We're in the Cotton Bowl. Can we get a better table? Yeah. <laughs> Can we not grab the table from the Sportatorium or from Fort Worth? You know, the, the big, long the table that we use to put monitors on, and let's bring that one in. <laughs> it's, it's the Cotton Bowl. There's got to be another table sitting around somewhere. <laughs> they, they have offices somewhere, yeah. Bring in a table. <laughs> All right. Now, here's the part where I maybe take things a little too seriously. I don't know. But you know what I'm about to say makes sense. They show clips from the Texas State Fair. They show the Fantastics, you know, palling around with fans. And then we see David Manning and Iceman Parsons going on rides together, playing pool together, hanging out together. Tabe, that wrestling fan in me who takes things too seriously, is like, okay, there's no way a referee should be seen palling around with a wrestler. I don't care. You know, I actually, I made a note. So I wrote some stuff down. I, I have a list of things, stuff to talk about. And I have on here, the goofy Manning Parsons interactions from the state fair. 
my first thought was if if you didn't know any better watching that video, you would think that Parsons and Manning were a couple. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because that's exactly what it looks like as they're walking around and look, uh, look at they're they're playing together on the roller coaster and the, and in the carnival games and all of that. Beyond even just the fact that they shouldn't even be together at all, they kind of make it look like they're a couple. Very odd for 1984 for sure. But like you, I had the same reaction. You know, they, there's no way that these two should be hanging out in public and then having a video put on TV of them hanging out and having fun together. Cause it's obvious now that Manning can't be unbiased in any of his matches. Bill Watts would have never let this video surface for a million different reasons. Anyway, Rob Schwartz asks us, is it possible that by the time Chris Adams faced Ric Flair, that his popularity trajectory was as close to a Von Eric brother as anyone who came in during those couple of peak world-class years. Chris, what do you think? That's pretty accurate. He was super, super popular and stayed popular even after he became a heel. But he, right up until, right up until just a few weeks before this show at the Cotton Bowl, he was a huge baby face, super popular. Yeah, the, he was easily the fourth Von Erich at this point. To me, he was a clear number four behind the Von Erichs. Like, I don't even know who's going to be in the argument. Like, Iceman was nowhere near as over as Chris Adams. However, it, it needs to be said, Chris Adams was nowhere near as popular as the Von Erichs. Yeah, he was a clear number four, but he was a distant number four. Yeah, there was definitely a huge gap between three and four, but there was also a gigantic gap between four and five. Right. Yeah, he was, he was way above everybody else, but he's still not up in the stratosphere with the Von Erichs. I agree with you 100%. Next up is Kevin Von Erich against Chris Adams. Now, let's talk a little bit about how we got here to this match. Chris Adams, in early 1983, gets introduced to the world-class audience, a newcomer from England, who was Kevin Von Erich's pen pal when they were kids. And what a coincidence, Chris Adams also <laughs> became a professional wrestler. I cringed when they introduced that. Pen pals with a guy. <laughs> I had not heard that part of the story. That's funny. That is not a good way to introduce somebody. No, but they, uh, but they did the same thing kind of with, you know, with Brian Adias, they bring him in and, oh, he's Carrie's best friend from high school and blah, blah, blah. So they, they just felt like they couldn't just bring somebody in and have him just be a baby face. No, no. He's got to have some tie to the Von Erics to make sure that you know, he's a good guy. Now, I don't know if you know this, that Brian Adidas, Kerry Von Erich thing was a total shoot. They were best friends in high school. I believe that that's true. Yeah, they they uh, ran track together in high school. And yeah, supposedly Kerry got his pal, Brian Adidas, trained and booked into wrestling. But anyway, Chris Adams, as we talked about earlier, had Gary Hart as his manager with the stated intention of Gary Hart being the difference between Chris being a guy who you know, won the American title, but didn't quite get to the heights he wanted. And their stated goal was to make Chris Adams the world's heavyweight champion. So one day we have, and this came out of nowhere. We had a match on TV. It was Gino Hernandez and Jake Roberts against the team of Kevin Von Erich and Chris Adams. Now, Chris, I'm going to ask you about this um, because you recently watched it. 
We had a Stella May versus Gino Hernandez feud. Stella May French, who was billed as Sunshine's aunt. And basically, Stella May was stalking Gino and driving him crazy. Chris, how did we get there? I don't remember. So I don't think they've really ever actually explained it. It kind of just happened. So after Texas Stadium, Sunshine kind of disappeared because she went to rehab or whatever it was. And then all of a sudden, Stella May shows up and says that Sunshine has gone back home and she's a mess and Stella May is here to take care of business and she was going to take care of Jimmy Garvin. And then Jimmy Garvin got run off and now Stella May is still there and they they essentially just kind of shifted. So she went from feuding with Jimmy Garvin to feuding with Gino for no reason. I don't remember there being any explanation. If there was, it was on the Fort Worth show, which I haven't seen. Okay, and... It looked similar to me, too, with one thing thrown in there. It seems like it was implied that, again, implied that Sunshine had something going on with Gino Hernandez, and Gino dumped her, and that's what put her into such a a horrible state of mind that she had a a breakdown. And like I, I don't know if that's really what they were presenting. But it's weird because they also more than implied that Sunshine and Chris Adams were together. Yeah. And I don't remember getting that vibe that they had implied Sunshine and Gino were together, but that would make sense. Maybe that you were supposed to read into it that that was the case. Uh, To me, it just seemed like all of a sudden she was just feuding with Gino just because. Yeah. uh, yeah. And like, I I guess what we're saying is none of it really makes sense. I mean, even exactly. Even if you're buying into, well, maybe Gino and and Sunshine. Well, Sunshine was with Adams. but So this match gets started, and Stella May's interference backfires, and Kevin and Adams wind up losing the match. Well, Gary Hart is super upset, and he's getting in Stella May's face. Kevin comes to break it up, and Gary Hart's not having it. He is, you know, in this woman's face, seemingly physically threatening her, but not actually doing anything physical kevin throws gary hart aside gary does not take that hint and then finally kevin belts gary hart chris adams takes quick assessment of the situation and super kicks kevin like out of a out of a cannon it was a great super kick i'm kind of thinking if you're the average fan sitting at home and by the way the crowd went silent everyone's mouth jaw just hit the floor right now in this point of the feud Chris Adams, in my opinion, he might not be right, but he's justified. Kevin is is manhandling his manager. Exactly. I thought they did this so well, even in the weeks leading up. So in the in the weeks leading up, you had a couple of times where somebody would interfere and then Gary Hart KO'd somebody with his slapjack and Kevin and Chris Adams gets the pinfall. And then he interfered in a match with uh, Adams and Flair and Adams gets disqualified. And all this time, Adams is still the baby face, but it's real subtle. And now some little bits of heel stuff are starting to slip in. And then we get to this match, and it's an exact rerun of the Precious and Sunshine thing, where Stella May trips Adams, and he ends up getting, or, or Von Erich, or whoever it was, and ends up getting pinned. And now Adams is mad, and Hart is mad because she's cost him this match, and their anger is justified. They are yeah. absolutely right to be angry. And then... Kevin steps in and says, hey, quit doing that. But Gary Hart has a right to be angry. And then 
Kevin throws the first punch. Yep. Gary Hart did not do anything over the line. He was close. He was close because he was definitely trying to intimidate Stella May. But up in, but before this, Stella May had hit people with a two by four. She had interfered. She had been very physically involved with wrestlers a lot, so she could handle herself. And here, Kevin essentially sucker punches Gary Hart, and Chris Adams says, "Wait a minute, you can't do that," and super kicks him into the next week. Now you see that, and that's the thing. I love feuds like that. Much like Bruno Sammartino and Larry Zbysko, like it starts with the heels, the guy who's about to become a hardcore heel. His actions are completely justified. Um, but one thing, Chris Adams comes to the ring for this match, and he is in full heel mode, which I don't think they should have done. I think they should have had Chris, you know, a, being a little bit of a bit, you know, not quite a baby face, but certainly not quite a heel. And he gets on the mic and he starts barking at Kevin Von Erich. He says, you know, Kevin, I'm not going to put up with any of your kicking, any of your punching. Let's wrestle a fair and square match because I'm going to win. Like, it should have been toned down, in my opinion. You know, I agree with that. I don't think that they realized what they had because I don't think they quite realized that the fans were still a lot on Chris Adams' side because he got a lot of cheers coming into this match. And even afterwards, I think he went in acting like he thought he would be treated as opposed to what actually happened. And so it ends up coming off a little too strong. I'm with you though. He should have come in acting like nothing had changed. Like like he, maybe he's mad at Kevin Von Erich for what went down, but Hey, I'm still the same guy I was three months ago. Yep. I'm just having a problem with a friend of mine. Well put. I agree. I mean, you know, you could have done the thing where Chris Adams was, you know, caught up in stuff that was completely out of his control with with Kevin and Gary Hart. He should have come to the ring like he's still figuring it out. You know, he did something heel-ish, but it's certainly defensible. But they have a it was a good match. It was a babyface match. It starts out with them just using wrestling holds on each other. Then Chris starts getting aggressive, but he's still not breaking the rules. He's kicking, but with the flat of the foot. He is throwing forearms but forearms are legal and then kevin comes back and you know rolls up chris adams and wins fair and square then chris is outside the ring and he's acting like a baby tossing stuff around which i don't think he should have done he should have just gone outside the ring and hung his head and said you know damn it i lost fair and square but that's not what happened kevin grabbed the mic and he says, Chris, don't be like that. I won fair and square, and I can't believe I'm about to make this offer. But if you fa- fire Gary Hart right now, I'm going to try my best to bury the hatchet. So we've got this moment where it's like, wow, you know, what's going to happen next? I knew what was going to happen next. So Kevin gets into it with Gary Hart, and Chris Adams grabs a chair and just bludgeons Kevin Von Erich, completing his heel turn, cementing it. He is now on that side of the fence. Chris, your thoughts? I thought this was really well done. And boy, Chris just waffled Kevin right in the back of the head with that wooden chair, busts him open legit, blood everywhere. They sell it like Kevin is is dead. I mean, we need an ambulance and we need, and we've got people checking on him and there's, and he's bleeding like crazy and the fans are going nuts. And even at this, you can still kind of see how Chris Adams would feel justified because now who is Kevin Von Erich to sit there and tell him he needs to fire his manager? 
Oh, yeah. if, if you do this, then I'll approve of you and we can be friends again. No, no. Fr- friendship isn't supposed to be conditional like that. Of course, Chris is going to say, no, wait a minute. You don't get to tell me what to do with my manager. And excellent point. And, you know, and so then he blasts him and the fans still cheer him. Even as they're hysterically crying at ringside and think that Kevin is paralyzed and he's going to be dead. And we're going to be having a Kevin Von Erich memorial show in a few months. <laughs> you know, even as all of that's going on, Chris Adams is still getting cheers because people still realize he was justified in some of his actions, even when he's doing something as heinous as attacking Kevin from behind. And it needs to be pointed out that once again, without any real provocation, Kevin was roughing up Gary Hart when Chris grabbed that chair and started hitting Adams. Exactly. So we cannot discuss this post-match without discussing the three little girls at ringside. I'm not little. They were probably like 13, 14, and they were crying hysterically. They were screaming like, this is real, and Kevin's about to die. And, I mean, part of me gets it. All they see is Kevin on his face with blood all over the place, and there was a lot of blood. And... David Manning starts, he actually, Danny, David Manning did a good job here. He started screaming to get an ambulance to ringside, and I I thought he put that over well. So part of me gets it as far as, like, these girls feeling the way they felt. But here's my first thought, Chris. Where are their parents? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I love their reaction, but that didn't even occur to me. You're right. They... I, and I thought they may were maybe a little bit older, but yeah, they were a little young to be by themselves in that situation. Yeah, maybe, where are their parents? It's wrestling. Wrestling crowds are dangerous, or maybe they weren't in world class. I don't know, but there's no way they, they should have been at the matches by themselves. This, if you have not seen this, I believe it is on WWE Network. I think the date on it is November 7th, 1984. If you have WWE Network and you have not seen this, you have got to see this. Because I remember watching it in 1984 being like, holy crap, you know, I mean, the 55-year-old me now, if I was running that promotion, I would have been like, look, send someone out there and tell them, hey, Kevin's okay. He's just going to the hospital to get looked over, but it looks like he's just got a cut and he's okay. 19-year-old me would have had someone go up and say, look, I think you guys need to go home now and not watch the news for a few days. Now, just to clarify, it's November 10th is the, is the date of the episode. But yeah, the, it might not have been a bad idea. But then again, you know, they really they're buying into the show and that's not a bad thing. And in their defense, like everything that they saw was 100 percent legit. It's not like Kevin bladed the back of his head or anything like that. No, Adams waffled him with that chair, busted him open hard way. And he legit was bleeding like crazy. Yes, I saw the blood gushing out of Kevin's, the back of Kevin's head. I'm like, and that was the first time I saw that was when I watched it on Friday. And I just figured, okay, you know, Kerry just poured some blood from a, uh, some device, whatever, on his head. It's like, no, Kevin, there was blood spurting out of his head. Yeah, and they showed it a week or two later. They showed, he, he did an interview and he showed the back of his head. He had a nice... A nice row of stitches on the back of his head. Oh man, you know what? Maybe, yeah, maybe that, maybe the whole thing was real. That 
David Manning was like, oh, man, we need an ambulance. But then, no, then again, they put over the, you know, my hands and feet are tingling, which I don't think they were. Yeah, I uh, I think they pl- they they planned everything and it just ended up looking better than what they had planned. Yeah. All right. We have Kerry Von Erich defeating Mike Reed by disqualification. This was not on TV. I'm guessing there was an intermission either right before or right after this. Not exactly the way you use Kerry for a cotton bowl show, in my opinion. <laughs> Mike, they put him in. I didn't realize that I uh, that they put him in with Mike Reed. Wow, that's a that's a waste of a match with Kerry. Yeah, I don't uh, know Mike Reed would... was not exactly Butch Reed. Uh, no, he, and he, Mike Reed was uh, he was a jobber. You know, you and I have talked about before about this that that world class didn't really have jobbers other than a couple of guys, and Mike Reed was one of them. Mike Bond was another. Yeah. And everybody else got wins and looked good except those guys. So to put Kerry in with him on a stadium show doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. And yeah, you know, like yeah, I think you're you're better off just not having the match. But anyway, the next match on this show is a six man. And you know what? I guess Kerry had to wrestle twice because everyone literally everyone else did. Gino Hernandez, Chris Adams, and Jake Roberts against Kerry Von Erich, Mike Von Erich, and Bobby Fulton subbing for the injured Kevin Von Erich. Chris, what did you think of this match? I thought this was an excellent match. Lots of action. You got six guys who can all, well, five guys who can really go. And then Mike Von Erich. And again, you're, you're hiding him in a situation where he doesn't have to carry the action. And they go about 15 minutes. The bad guys get to win the six-man titles. And now we're off and running with, with Chris as a as a top flight heel after he's already killed Kevin Von Erich earlier. This was good. Yeah. And here's, here's where I'm, I micromanage things, but I think you need someone in the dressing room, micromanaging these things. Bobby Fulton was a great wrestler, but wouldn't Iceman Parsons have made more sense as the substitution? I mean, he had been there and been portrayed as a Von Erich friend for at least a year and a half by this point, Bobby Fulton just got there. Yeah, it didn't make much sense to have Bobby Fulton as a sub. Maybe they maybe they did it as a way to make it seem rushed. I don't know. And then That's they end up point. having, and at the end of the day, they didn't even have Bobby take the fall. Kerry ends up getting pinned, which again doesn't really make any sense. Why wouldn't you have the weak link and the the small tag team guy take the pin? And, oh, well, you know, if only Kevin had been in there, we wouldn't have lost because the non-Von Eric is the guy who lost. But instead, it's Kerry, who's the biggest star on that team. He's the one who ends up taking the pinfall. Here's why I think it makes sense, because just like you said, Kerry is the biggest guy on the team. This whole card seemed to be aimed at getting Chris Adams over as the most evil man in the world. First, he did what he did to Kevin. And now he is you know, cheating to win his matches. And by having Kerry get pinned in that match, it's almost like, okay, the Freebirds are gone. The new faction is Gino Hernandez, Chris Adams, and Jake Roberts. They just pinned Kerry. You better take these guys seriously. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, as opposed to, well, they fluked into it because they were able to beat Fulton. Yeah, that kind of morphs into something else I was I was thinking about in that, you know, when they brought in the Freebirds, they buried them right away. They never really got to be treated seriously. Like I said, the one time they had Terry Gordy lose four times in six weeks, they didn't do that with Gino and Chris. 
No. They did, they did not lose matches right away on TV to the Von Erichs. They were pushed and they were protected a lot more than the Freebirds ever were. No, I agree with you. And, you know, like I said, it, it worked with the Freebirds, but I, I think they could have given the Freebirds more. There is a loud Chris is a traitor chant on this match. Now, maybe world class's enhanced production values made this come across better than it was. But I mean, like I said, when you hear a chant on TV, it, it, it never does the live chant justice. Yeah, it comes through loud and clear. You could tell, at least in that moment, a lot of that crowd, they wanted to kill him. They were ready to, to hurt Adams. I was going to say, if, if I was Chris Adams in real life, like I would, be, I would have been concerned for my safety outside of the wrestling world right around this point. Well, and to go back out there and wrestle another match with that, again, world-class, super tight security with, that oh, yeah. str- with the string around ringside to keep people back, as we saw... You know, there's the one famous thing where the fan confronts Terry Gordy and Gordy blasts him into the second row because the guy's able to get over the ropes. I'm not sure I'd go back out there. You know, you just you just laid out Kevin Von Erich and now you're going back out there to wrestle again. Uh, maybe not. No, the, the security was weak. And, and going back to the last show we discussed, I mean, when Precious and Jimmy Garvin were going back after the match, I mean, I was I was actually concerned for Precious's safety just because she had like very little security. Yeah. And the security they did have was old guys and they just, it did not look very secure. And, and the fans were encouraged to be involved. They were allowed to run up to the ring. They were allowed to grab a hold of wrestlers and kiss them. They were allowed to be really, really physical, but they, apparently they never really had any actual issues, but man, they sure created the environment where they could have had them. Yeah. I, I had never heard of a real issue in Dallas, yeah, I'm sure something happened, but like nothing over the top, which is good. So we have new six-man tag team champions, a, a, a kind of a title that never made sense to me. But then again, I guess it makes sense if you have the Von Erichs and the Freebirds. So Gino Hernandez is now the American champion, the Texas champion, and part of the six-man tag team champions. So they're taking his push seriously. And Jake Roberts celebrates in the back by spray painting his partners and his apparent girlfriend, Nicola Roberts, pink. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's got the pink hair and he just, this was just so bizarre. It, it just doesn't make any sense at all. It kind of came out of nowhere, but Hey, Hey, I just happen to have a can of pink spray paint and I'm going to sp- spray your hair. <laughs> he's, he's spraying their hair. He's spraying their chest. He's pulling Nicola's hair, like teasing a kiss. To her, I, I didn't get the. And to this day, I don't get what they were trying to put across with like Nicola Roberts and Jake. You know, is this a real relationship? If it's not, Jake's taken a lot of liberties with her. Yeah, and she was supposedly with Gino, but here he is doing that. It was weird. No, you know, you know what? She was she was never portrayed as being linked romantically with Gino Hernandez. It was always, you know, she's my bodyguard. She's here to take care of. Uh, Stella Mae French, and then she's with Jake Roberts. And I, like I said, it's, if she was in a real relationship with Jake, fine. But if not, Jake was not exactly gentle with her on camera. Yeah, good point. All right. Next match. And this is the thing. We've got four more matches, and I'm not sure why a lot of people are sticking around after this. 
Buck Zumhoff over Coco Ware. There was no TV for this. Killer Khan over Jules Strongbow. First of all, I, for years, I was wondering why Killer Khan was not on this show. I just learned a couple of days ago that he was, and it just wasn't televised. Jules Strongbow. I remember him debuting in world-class championship wrestling. He had been in the WWF a year earlier and just being like, oh, my God, how can they possibly push this guy? Man, this is, I don't know. It's like they were running short of bodies or something because he just, he has no charisma. He does not have a good look. He's not a good worker. He's not at all good in the ring. He's just not even mediocre. He's kind of bad in every way. And he got a nice push. He, they did a, they ran an angle where he got busted open and went to the back and came back dressed in war paint and with a strap and he beat up Gary Hart or something like that. And uh, yeah, he's just terrible. I, I don't even remember that. Maybe I missed that week. Maybe I just blacked it out. But I, I just can't help but theorize that maybe he lived in or around Dallas and was willing to work on the cheap. And even then, I, I don't get the whole thing. Yeah, he brings absolutely nothing to the table. No. Next match, Butch Reed against Iceman King Parsons. What did you think of this match, Chris? Uh, I got to check my notes. I don't remember thinking much of anything about this match. In fact, I don't have in my notes on this match, I don't have anything. So ah. I, I made no notes on it at all. I don't remember it. I'm sure given who they were. It was probably pretty good, but I sure don't remember it. Uh, it was not a good match. It was a 10-minute time limit draw, and you know, Iceman was okay. He wasn't bad. Butch Reed was really good at this point, and it felt like their styles just did not mix. And you know, not only was it not a good match, I, again, I like Iceman. I'm about to tell an Iceman story, but at this point, if you're going to a draw with Iceman Parsons, you're not a star. That's a fair point. At this point, Iceman was losing all of his top single matches to people. So if, if Reed's not beating him, yeah, that's a sign you're not going anywhere. And while we're discussing Bill Mercer, he called Butch Reed the Hacksaw Man. The <laughs> ultimate Mercerism. Oh. <laughs> all right. Iceman King Parsons, I thought he was a charismatic guy who should have gone further in the wrestling business. I haven't heard any idea why he didn't, but they did a, we talked about, you know, how great the world-class production was. They did a video on him. I think it was before he wrestled his first match when they were introducing him and they showed a video of how he had his nickname, Iceman King Parsons. His job was to drive around St. Louis delivering ice to people and this is before everyone had a refrigerator it used to be that the ice man would show up with a big block of ice and you would put it in your ice box that's what they called them and that's how you kept your food cold so king parson's girlfriends would call him ice man because his hands were always cold i always thought that was a really good touch it was yeah it was nicely done i have no idea that was actually how he got his nickname or not I always thought King was fake, but that's actually his name. I was surprised at that. But yeah, that video is really well done. It was a nice touch. It wasn't cheesy like it would have been had the WWF done the exact same thing. It seemed pretty legit. It seemed very legit, and that's why I liked it. I, I like totally bought the idea that you know that's how he got that nickname. So immediately, I liked the nickname. Yeah. All right, and finally, and I have this written down. 
that Reed Niceman was not a good match. And I'll bet if you were there live, this was turning into a long afternoon by this point. I would imagine so. It looks like it was actually pretty warm, even though it was late October. It's still Texas. It's probably 80 degrees, and I'll bet it was a long day, especially dragging out the Adams and Kevin Von Erich thing. Yeah, this was a long day. Yeah, and especially, I mean, the last four matches, this is the match that, in theory, you're hanging around to see after the whole six-man match. Gino Hernandez and Nicola Roberts against Mike Von Erich and Stella Mae French. now they, Sunshine comes back. They have a helicopter for her. She, you know, shows up like a rock star. Gives her aunt a great big hug. The fans are all very happy to see her. What did you think of this match, Chris? I kind of liked it, although I didn't like. This is an example of one where of a match where the baby faces are allowed to cheat, and the referee sees it, and I don't like it. Sunshine ends up hitting Nicola with a chair, and that's how we get the pinfall. But Sunshine is so hot that we just don't care. Yeah, I thought it was a good match for what it was. This was not going to be all Japan wrestling in the 1990s. I mean, and here's the thing. Like, you're not going to believe that Stella Mae French, at least I don't believe it, would have a chance in hell against Nicola Roberts. I mean, this lady who has to be mid-40s earliest, probably early 50s, against this young woman who is twice her size. And yet there was consistently, they showed her to be a be, She's a truck driver, so she's super tough and she's able to take on Roberts. But yeah, it's awfully tough to buy her because Nicola is just so much bigger and younger and more athletic looking. Yeah. And they did the right finish though. I mean, they had Nicola, you know, beating the crap out of Stella May. And like you said, Sunshine hits Nicola with a chair and gets away with it. And we get to see Stella Mae Fringe pin Nicola Roberts. I think this was Nicola's last night in, in the territory. I might be wrong. Uh, I believe so, because I, I, I know somewhere in here, she ended up giving Stella Mae a DDT uh, in Fort Worth. I don't remember if it was after this or before this. I can't remember exactly. But yeah, I, I'm pretty sure this was her last night. And then she was going over to Crockett or whatever. And I thought the ending is good. I don't like it when the baby faces cheat to win like this and get away with it. But at the end of the day, they did the right thing by showing that they needed help to beat Nicola. And I also liked, for once, Mercer acknowledged something where Sunshine, when she hits Nicola with the chair, she actually hit the ropes first. So she didn't get her full on. And it was real obvious. And so Mercer actually acknowledged it and said, oh, it looks like she got the ropes a little bit first. But she got enough of her to knock her out. So, you know, every once in a while, there was a little gem from Mercer. I noticed that that was a good save on the part of Bill Mercer that, you know, he acknowledged it, but she got enough of him. That's a, a good point. Tape, what did you think overall of the 1984 Cotton Bowl show? It's a one match show, although the six man title match title change was OK compared to the Texas stadium show, which had a lot going for it and seemed like a bigger event overall. This feels like something that they should have run at reunion arena rather than outdoors. And with the lower crowd and all of that, I think the fans kind of thought the same thing. It felt like it really just didn't deliver. It, it needed more top end matches. You needed carry taking on somebody. And 
not just relying on Kevin and Chris to draw the show. I mean, I guess in a way they wanted this to be the Chris Adams show with very little other distractions, which you know brings me back to my Larry Zbysko comparison. You know, I think the WWF in 1980 wanted the Shea Stadium show just to be the Bruno versus Larry Zbysko show, which is why they didn't give back on the title defense. I, I kind of get that, but I thought there just wasn't enough here. Like, there was no Ric Flair. He was in Miami defending against superstar Billy Graham. Like, I would think this show should have been a priority having Ric Flair on it. Even if you put Flair in with, I don't know, Parsons or somebody else or something like that so that he's, it's not the main event, but he's still in there with somebody. You're not trying to sell it. Oh, maybe Kevin Von Erich's going to win the world title on this show or something like that. Maybe put Flair on there. Maybe bring back Harley Race for something or just do something else. You know, all of their other big shows, all of their reunion arena shows, the Christmas ones, the Texas Stadium shows all had more to them than this card. This card just was pretty thin for being a, a big outdoor stadium show. Now, here's what I would have done. OK, I thought about this and I thought about Harley Race. I thought about different other opponents. The Freebirds were in Japan, so or Hayes and Gordy were in Japan, so you couldn't just do a one-off with Flair and Hayes or Flair and Gordy. I would have had Ric Flair against Mike Von Erich, with Mike putting up a good fight, but in the end, Flair goes over reasonably clean. Flair gets some of his heat back. He actually wins a big match at a big show. And at the end of the day, they can say, hey, Mike is still only 20 years old. And he's younger than the kids who just played at the Texas versus Oklahoma game. He's been wrestling less than a year, and he still gave Flair everything he could handle. Like, I think this could have been a win-win. That would have been perfect. That wasn't going to happen. They weren't going to give Flair a win over Mike Von Erich like that. But that would have definitely filled out the card more. And the fans would have bought it. The fans, they're looking at Mike Von Erich, who looks really young who isn't filled out, who is still awkward and is obviously not as polished and as good as his older brothers, the fans would have accepted that he lost to Ric Flair because Ric Flair is the world champion. They don't expect him to win that match. No, and I'll, I'll even go a step further. I think the fans would have liked Mike Von Erich more if they had gone through with exactly what I just laid out. I think Mike needed a little bit of sympathy because he was pushed as a superstar from day one. And they could have said, hey, OK, Ric Flair gets a win. But Mike Von Erich, he's if he's this good when he's only 25 years old, imagine how good he's going to be next year, the year after that in five years. Exactly. He's inexperienced. You know, Carrie and David were still learning the ropes when they were 19 and 20 years old. They weren't able to hang with the world champion. Look where Mike is. Imagine what he's going to be when he's 23, 24, 25 years old. When he's what, how old Kerry is now. Imagine right. how good he could be. Exactly. That would have definitely been an improvement to what the card that we got. All right. One more fussing about this show. The Super Destroyers have now been unmasked. They are now the Long Riders. I have them as the American Tag Team Champions. And they're not on this show. I have no idea where they were, if they had a booking or not, but I don't know why they weren't on this show. Have them defend against the Fantastics who were about to win the titles anyway. Exactly. 
did they stick around? Were they still in world class? I can't remember if they were, if they hung around or not. I know that they did some stuff where they, the unmasking and there were some matches in Fort Worth with Parsons and Zumhoff, but maybe they were gone and had gone to, maybe they'd gone to Minneapolis by this point. I don't remember their exact timeline. They were in Georgia in late 84, early 85. They were on TBS. That's right. That's right. Um, yep. So they, they might have left early. I don't know. Maybe my information is not correct that they weren't the tag team champions on October 27th. But even if they weren't, do something where the PYTs are the world-class tag team champions and have the Fantastics win the match at the Cotton Bowl. Like I said, they're going to win them in November anyway. Exactly. All right. Yeah. One last thought. and I, I, This is just speculation on both of our parts. World-class was Red hot in 1983, hotter than they were in 84. Why was there no 1983 Texas Stadium show or a Cotton Bowl show? They had an 82 Texas Stadium show, and they had one all the way through 88. They skipped 83. What were these people thinking, Chris? Good question. It's just a perfect example of that. They they didn't necessarily know what they were doing all the time. But yeah, they could have easily had that show in June of 83 at reunion arena that could have been at Texas stadium. Although it would have been awfully hot at that time of the year, have that at Texas stadium and you're going to draw 30,000 people for, you know, race and Carrie and Chris and Jimmy and those guys that would have been, and Bruiser Brody was there. That was a huge show. They could have drawn a much bigger house having that outdoors rather than putting it at reunion arena. I mean, my only guess is that they might have been, so taken aback by their newfound success, like they might not have guessed that the Freebirds versus Von Erich's feud was going to get as white hot as it got. And maybe by the time they figured it out, you know, the year before the Texas Stadium show did not draw well at all. And maybe they were just trying to avoid another embarrassment. And like I said, not knowing how hot they would get. That's entirely reasonable. And maybe by the time they figured it out, they couldn't put something together. Yeah, and a Cotton Bowl show, well, they started running the Cotton Bowl in 1984, so maybe that wasn't even on their radar. Chris, I want to thank you for taking the time and doing all your work and and being part of Stick to Wrestling this week. You're a great guest. Well, John, thank you so much. I love being on the show. I really appreciate it. I I thank you for asking me. I love talking about uh, wrestling in general, and it's nice to be able to talk about a TV show that I've just been watching a lot of and uh, to be able to share my thoughts. I really appreciate it. And so thank you and would love to be on again if you'll have me. Oh, definitely. And yeah, like I said, I, I saw that you had been binge watching the shows and now that you have a little bit of extra time on your hands. I was like, okay, let's get this guy while his memory is fresh. And I also want to thank Lou Kippelman, our lightning Lou Kippelman, our producer who does so much for the show behind the scenes. And this has been an a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Wear a mask. Let's get out of this. This concludes our podcast day. 